As I say, we're in Zephaniah chapter 1 tonight, and looking at verses 14 through 18. And I've titled the message, The Great Day of the Lord. Now, if I was to ask you if you believe the Scriptures inspired, you would say... Yes. <laughs> you better say yes, yes. And if I would say how much of it's profitable, you would say... All of it. All Scripture is inspired, and it's all profitable. It has a purpose, has a reason. And so as we consider Zephaniah, we are looking at the theme of the coming day of the Lord. And we are still in that first section of the outline, uh, warning to Judah of God's coming judgment. Now, the prophets in the Old Testament called the people back to God. That's really what the prophets did. They called the people to repentance. And they warned of coming judgment if the people did not repent. And God certainly gave great warnings time after time before Judgment Day finally came. For example, we find here in Jeremiah, one of the key prophets in the Old Testament, since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, God speaking, daily, rising up early and sending them. Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. God says, it's been the pattern. I've had the prophets, the prophets, warning, 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 day in, day out. God's pattern is to give great warnings before he brings great judgment. That's what we see in the scriptures. The world cannot say, Israel cannot say, and the world cannot say that they haven't been warned. The world cannot say we weren't given lots of space or time. They were. You know, even before the flood, Noah preached for three weeks and then got on the boat. Is that how it worked? No, how long did he preach for? 120 years. That seems to be ample space, right? I mean, God gives lots of space. We right now live in what we call the age of grace. But be very sure, judgment is on its way. People keep thinking that we are somehow going to make the world better. We are not. Only King Jesus is going to bring in the kingdom and make the world better. Now, until that time, don't expect anything. Yes, praise God for pockets of mercy and grace. But the overall trajectory of the pre-kingdom world is not that things are getting better, but worse. In the last days, come better in times? No, perilous times. Evil men will become worse and worse. The theme of Zephaniah is the coming day of the Lord. And it is one of two books in the Old Testament that has the theme, the day of the Lord. The other book being the book of Joel. Zephaniah 1 really presents three portrayals of the coming day of the Lord. And uh, we could break it down like this. A great flood. This, this word consumed is, is repeatedly used there in those first three verses. And that same word is used in reference to the, the great flood of Noah's day that consumed the entire world. And so we see kind of a portrayal in terms of that kind of consuming a great flood. 
And then a great sacrifice that we looked at last time. And now tonight, a great battle. The day of the Lord theme was introduced in Zephaniah 1.7. And the day of the Lord refers to the coming day of the Lord's intervention in judgment. It's the day when the Lord directly displays His Lordship authority and power in judgment. And it is awesome. Awesomely terrible, as we will see in our study tonight. I dare say it's so terrible that we often don't like to hear messages about it. People much prefer warm fuzzies. Everything is so man-centered, it seems to me. Am I getting old or what? Uh, Or am I just discerning? Even so much of the contemporary Christian music seems so man-centered to me. It's all about me and my feet. How about the glory of God? How about we sing to the glory of God for a while? Anyway, sorry, that's an off-key rant here. But uh, The bulk of the scripture emphasizes two main day of the Lord interventions in judgment. And the first relates to the Babylonian captivity and the second to the tribulation period leading up to the Lord's second coming. The first, in essence, was really but a foreshadowing of what is yet to come. And of this coming day of the Lord's judgment, Christ said this. Here's what's coming. Here's what Jesus said. I mean, if you're putting your stock in what Jesus said, maybe you want to listen to this. He said, then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. That's what's coming. In relation to the day of the Lord judgment theme, we see both a near partial and a distant complete theme in the scriptures. And often these two aspects are interwoven, even as we see here in Zephaniah. For example, in Zephaniah chapter 1, 2, and 3, we have noted there is a universal aspect of this coming judgment. But here in 1, 4 through 17, the emphasis seems to be more local related to the time of the Babylonian captivity. But then again in verse 18, the emphasis again is universal. So the best way to see this is that the day of the Lord has overlapping traits related to both near and far, And that the near fulfillment is really a foreshadowing of what is yet to be completely fulfilled. Uh, I know this is a little fuzzy, but it makes the point. I stole it from somebody and they didn't do a very good job. It's a little fuzzy. (laughs) So why am I whining about it? Anyway, uh, the prophetic telescope. You got the prophet and there's a near aspect, a near fulfillment, a day of the Lord aspect, and a far fulfillment. And that's what I'm saying. <clears throat> he interweaves these themes. Well, as we come to Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18, we have here the most vivid picture in the entire Bible of the terribleness of the coming day of the Lord. It's worse than anyone could ever imagine. Notice it says, verse 14, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. There's an emphasis on near here. In the Hebrew, it's positioned first in the sentence, putting it in the emphatic position. There's an emphasis there. 
This serves as a strong warning that this coming day of the Lord's intervening judgment is imminent and should be taken seriously. There's an urgency. Now, we think that Zephaniah probably wrote just prior to what we might call the soft or the semi-revival under King Josiah, which took place in 622. And I say it that way because it seems like even though Josiah was on fire for God and wanting to implement all kinds of reforms, the people kind of went along with it, but their heart wasn't in it. It didn't last long at all. So we think Zephaniah is writing just prior to that 622 date, probably. And that being the case, the Babylonians began their terror of besieging Jerusalem just 17 years later in 605 B.C. There were three sieges of Jerusalem, 605, 597, and 586 B.C., with the temple being destroyed in 586 And all the Jews at that time, essentially all the Jews, being taken away to the land of Babylon. Well, 17 years is not a long time, right? No, it's not. And yet, even then, God was giving a little space to repent. This day of judgment was coming more quickly than anyone realized. It was much nearer than the people thought. And I wonder if the same is not true today. I'm not setting any dates. We don't know. But we know we're getting closer. Uh, Note the double emphasis. The great day of the Lord is near. And then again, it is near and hastens quickly. Again, the warning was clear and it was strong with the sense of now is the time to respond. To get right with God. Cross-reference in terms of this uh, great day of the Lord. Joel 2.11 talks about... Uh, The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. The strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? It's great in the sense of awful, awesomely awful. Now the noises of this day are bitter, it says, as even the strong men of battle cry out in terror. Uh, Bitter crying defines the day. And once the day falls upon them, it will be too late. The day was approaching with great speed and would come with great and severe intensity. Urgency is all over these words. Verse 15, that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Looking for a bright spot in this verse? Might want to study long and hard. I don't think it's there. These words basically speak for themselves. They are dark and ominous. This is a day of wrath. That's how the verse begins. That day is a day of wrath. This is sinners in the hands of an angry God. God's not so angry anymore. At least in the minds of a lot of people. I mean, he just, you know, he doesn't really care. I mean, we can twist his word all over the place, not take a stand on anything. It's all good. Note the words. Wrath, trouble, distress, devastation, desolation, darkness, gloominess, clouds, thick darkness. This is dire and horrifying. He presents a staccato effect, stacking up adjectives designed to drive home the dreadful character of the coming day of the Lord. I think if we could actually see 
the terribleness of the coming day of the Lord's judgment, you couldn't make us be quiet. We would be fanatically warning people from the rooftops. You know, it's hard to imagine. But I mean, we get a little glimpse of this in the book of Revelation. The sky receded as the scroll when it's rolled up. Every mountain and island were moved out of its place. Wow, that's a mega, that's a mega off the charts type of a earthquake. The kings of the earth, it gets the attention of the whole world, all right. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, mighty men, every slave, every man, every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Well, on that day, the Lord will be known for who he is. It's called the day of the Lord for a reason. The Almighty God, with whom we have to do, is going to make himself very obvious. The world will be rocking, and every category of people will be terrified beyond belief, trying to find somewhere to hide, knowing that the great day of God's wrath has come. They even know it. John MacArthur says, This section seems to point to the near fulfillment when Babylon subdued Judah. That is in view. We saw that earlier in verses 4 through 13. As well as a far fulfillment, which will involve the whole earth. So again, I think we have intertwined this theme of, of God's intervening judgment. Yes, it had application to Babylon, but it has application in relationship to the last days related to the second coming. Verse 16. A day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. It is presented in a very picturesque way, so vivid it's almost like you can see it happening. The trumpet here refers to a signaling alarm, kind of comparable to the sirens of warning that are going off in the cities of Ukraine today. And this is happening in the most fortified cities against the high towers. The idea is no place is safe or exempt. There's no escape. They will be defenseless. There's no place to find refuge. Verse 17, I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. God is behind this. He says, I will bring Distress upon men. Well, I thought it was the Babylonians. Yeah, God sovereignly is behind the Babylonians. I will bring distress upon men. This is what it means to have God against you. He's doing it. And it's not pleasant. They shall flounder and wander helplessly about like blind men. This is the curse that God warned about for disobedience back in Deuteronomy. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 28. The Lord will strike you in madness and blindness and confusion of heart. And you shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness and shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and plundered continually and no one shall save you. This is a fulfillment of what God warned about. What a pitiful condition. Nothing more serious than this. Of all the promises in the Bible, and I've shared this at the bedside of many dying saints, 
of all the promises, I love Romans 8.39, where it says, Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We cling to this in time and eternity. But this is not that. This is God's wrath being experienced. This is the experience of being separated from God in His judgment. And there's nothing more horrible. And why was this going to happen? Well, God says, because they have sinned against the Lord. This is the consequences of sinful rebellion. They refuse to repent. They refuse to take God seriously. As noted earlier in the chapter, the people of Judah were very heavy into idolatry. They did not seek the Lord. Remember how they couldn't care less? As we saw in chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. But now what? Now that the great day of the Lord has come, and all hell has broken loose, now what? What a terrible reality. And the reason the warning is so strong is because God doesn't want people to go there, to end up there. In that day, their blood would be poured out like dust and their flesh piled up like dung. The land would be turned into a slaughterhouse with dead bodies everywhere. Read the book of Lamentations. It was a time of wailing and lamenting, a time of, a time of unimaginable grief. And it came to be within just the space of a few short years of this warning. And yet very few seemed to take the prophets seriously. Yes, there was a remnant, and God always has a remnant. But for the most part, the people did not respond to the prophets' warning. Verse 18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. No one would be able to buy their way out of this. You know, wealthy people kind of think, boy, I can get whatever I want if I just push these buttons and, and you know, work on this person, whatever. But no, not now. Silver and gold can't deliver from the day of the Lord's wrath. Money in that day becomes worthless. When it comes to God, there's only one thing that can ransom our soul. <clears throat> And that's the blood of Jesus. How wonderful this is. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2, there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom. He paid the price for us. And we know what that price was. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed, bought, paid for, bought and paid for, uh, to buy back, knowing you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver and gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. People put lots of stock in money, but in the end, it can't do a thing for you. In the day of God's wrath, it is totally worthless. What will they do then? The Bible says, Do not trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Again, many commentators believe that 
Verse 18 has a universal feel that will be fulfilled in the climactic coming day of the Lord judgment in what we commonly call the tribulation period. He speaks here of the whole land being devoured by the fire of God's jealousy. Compare verse 3 where it says, I will cut off man from the face of the land. The New American Standard translates this in verse 18, and all the earth will be devoured. The ESV renders it, all the earth shall be consumed. In the end, this is a whole earth phenomenon. It's not just Israel, but it's a whole world phenomenon. The climactic day of the Lord's judgment, as detailed in the book of Revelation, involves the entire world, and not just a part of it. The entire world will experience the day of his wrath at that time. Now, notice uh, what we have here in verse 18 when it speaks about the fire of his jealousy. Several years ago, Oprah Winfrey famously renounced Christianity, saying that when she was a young gal, she was in a church and a preacher was carrying on about the fact that that the God of the Bible was a jealous God. And that was so offensive to her. It's really quite arrogant to kind of take the position of sitting in judgment on God. You know, that kind of puts you just a little higher than God to judge the God of the Bible. She kind of put herself in that position. That's not a good place to be. God is a righteously jealous God. After all, he created us for himself. And he has every right to expect our worshipful allegiance to him and him alone. There is a righteous jealousy. If someone hits on my wife, I'm not going to be passive about it. I'll tell you, guy, I'm not going to be passive. Say, well, it's no problem, you know. No, no, no. A righteous anger combined with righteous jealousy, if indeed it is righteous, Uh, is not going to appreciate someone trying to take from me what rightfully belongs to me alone. How much more the holy, righteous God of the Bible being jealous over what is rightfully His? This is holy jealousy. And we read about it all over the place in the Old Testament. He didn't say this once or twice. In Exodus chapter 20, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything under heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them. Why? 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 This is the idea of having something else that's called your God. Don't do it. Why? For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father's Upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Again, Exodus 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name, whose very character is jealous, is a jealous God. And then again, book of Deuteronomy 4, 24. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy 6.15, For the Lord your God is a, je- is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Don't push him. He's a jealous God. God is a jealous God who tolerates no rivals. 
He demands full-out allegiance and that he alone is to be recognized as God. This is the problem God has with the entire world. They don't care about God. The entire world, remnant accepted, has paid no regard to this doctrine of God's jealousy. Him being a jealous God. Even in the midst of the coming day of the Lord, rebel humanity, so committed to idolatry, still will not repent in the face of God's awesome display of overwhelming lordship. For example, Dan, uh, Daniel, Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. But the rest of, the man, of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons. This is a worship issue. And idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Hardcore. We see all these judgments around us, and yet we're defying God. We're not going to repent. Again, Revelation chapter 16 says there, verse 9, And the men were scorched with great heat. And you'd think they'd humble down and, and, and repent. Nope, 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 nope. They were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. They don't deny he has power over these plagues. They just defy it. They did not repent and give him glory. That's what he's looking for. Repentance gives God glory. It humbles underneath him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. <clears throat> they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. I'm telling you, we're talking about hardened humanity. Depravity can be so hard. You know, God just demands that we give him his due as God. Is that asking too much? Well, for rebel humanity, it is. They refuse to do so and thus incur his full cup of wrath. God's consuming passion is that people recognize him to be the God that he is. And he's a jealous God to that end. He demands to be recognized for who he is. And he is going to one day rise up and purge the world of all the rebels who refuse to do so. As Isaiah 2 says repeatedly, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. God's going to push the, the pride of man down, press him down into the, into the world, into the grave. He will make a speedy riddance. Notice it says there. He will make a speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. And really in view here are the rebels. That's the context here. All those rebels who defy his lordship in the day of the Lord are going down. Notice even amongst his own people what God's going to do in the day of the Lord 
in Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, the two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. But one-third shall be left in it. I will bring one-third through the fire. So, you know, if the day of the Lord came today in the land of Israel, two-thirds of them would end up dying. But one-third, he says, I will bring through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And notice what this, uh, this group that's been refined and brought through the fire, the true converts, notice what defines them. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one, very personally, each one will say, the Lord is my God. Ah, they get it. This is the great issue before the world. Before Israel and before the world, will they bow before the lordship of God, of Christ, or won't they? And in the end, all rebels will perish under the judgment of God's wrath. And in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the end of the story. God is a jealous God. And He is jealous of His lordship and tolerates no other rivals. The Believer's Study Bible says, the Christian should be careful not to adopt a complacent or cynical attitude regarding the day of the Lord, but instead should adopt an attitude of expectancy because the event is sure and ever-present on the horizon. And indeed it is. You know, Peter emphasizes this very strongly in his last letter. And he says in verse... Uh, Chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The reality of what's coming should affect how we live as God's people. Looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. The great day of the Lord hung over the people of Zephaniah's day, as it hangs over the people of our day, like the famous sword of Damocles. You know the story? Let me rehearse it for you. Maybe you don't. There's a famous parable called the sword of Damocles. It was popularized by a Roman philosopher by the name of Cicero before the time of Christ. So it goes way back. He told the story of Dionysus II, a tyrannical king who once ruled over the Cilician city of Syracuse during the 4th and the 5th centuries B.C. Though rich and powerful, Dionysus was supremely unhappy. He was tormented by fears of assassination. Only his daughters could cut his beard. You know might want to, oops, slip, sorry, you're gone. One day, a court flatterer by the name of Damocles showered him with compliments and remarked how blissful his life must be. Annoyed, the king replied, do you wish to taste it for yourself and make a trial of my good fortune? When Damocles agreed, Dionysus seated him on a golden couch and ordered a host of servants wait on him. He was treated to succulent cuts of meat, 
lavished with scented perfumes and ointments. Damocles couldn't believe his good fortune. But just as he was starting to enjoy the life of a king, he noticed that Dionysus had also hung a razor-sharp sword from the ceiling. It was positioned over Damocles' head, suspended by a single strand of horsehair. From then on, Damocles began to fear for his life. And it made it impossible for him to savor the feast or enjoy the servants. After casting several nervous glances at the blade dangling above him, he asked to be excused, saying he no longer wished to be so fortunate. Yeah, a picture here. Uh, The sword of Damocles. Yeah, okay, he's sitting where the king said, but but yeah, this, this sword dangling over his head just... Couldn't enjoy it. Here is the moral of the story as applied to where we are today. The sword of the day of the Lord judgment is dangling over the head of the world, as it were. But contrary to Damocles, the world is oblivious to it. Contrary to Damocles, the world is not seeking to get out of the place of danger. Not even realizing Where they are. Rather, they carry on with no fear of God's coming judgment. You know the place of depravity takes you to where you have no fear of God. And that's where the world is. Because they don't believe the Bible. They don't believe the warnings. Even though the warnings are clearly there. Even though the sword is clearly dangling. So, in the meantime while the sword is perilously dangling, and at some point, at God's sovereign direction, it will come down in the day of the Lord judgment with horrifying results. So what should we do? What should the world do? Well, we don't have to wonder about this. Psalm 2. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. You know the mover and shakers of the world, those great leaders. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. In the end, there are two categories of people. Those who refuse to embrace the Son in saving faith and perish in that way. And the blessed who put their trust in Him. Where is your trust tonight? Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. I submit to you, God has not been ambiguous. There is coming a great and terrible day of the Lord judgment. We don't know exactly when it's going to come because the Bible says it comes as a thief in the night. But it's coming. And the warning is given. Long, long warnings. I mean, you had the prophets in the Old Testament. You got a little foretaste of it. The day of the Lord, judgment in the Babylonian captivity. And then we got all the inspired scriptures leading up to where we are today. Uh, The people called the church, given the holy scriptures. It's been deposited with us so that we can warn the world. The book of Revelation, those judgments don't really apply to us. God has not appointed us to wrath. We're going to be taken out. But we're warning the world it's coming. 
Judgment day is coming, and the world doesn't want to hear that. You know what they think about me? People like me need to be put away somewhere. I mean, I'm just a raving maniac. I believe this stuff. Judgment day is coming. And they don't want to hear that at all. No, no, no. We're going to make it better. You know, we're going to bring in a better day as we go along. And they're trying to figure it out. And then you get situations like what's happening over there in Ukraine, and they don't know what to do with this fanatic. (laughs) True. I agree. (laughs) He is a fanatic. He's a thug is what he is. Uh, You know, God will take care of him in due time. In the meantime, praise the Lord for our blessed hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It is our blessed hope. Our hope's not here. Our hope's in Jesus Christ, who's one day going to take us out of the world. You know, a guy called me this week, and he was asking me what I thought about uh, the rapture. And I said, my, my doctrine is perhaps today. Well, he kind of laughed. And by the time I got done explaining, he was no longer laughing. I mean, this is no laughing matter. Perhaps today, Jesus is going to come someday. Perhaps today, every day, almost every day, when I get up early in the morning, the sun's coming up, and I've got my, my, my window there, my bay window, three Three different windows. And I'll say, perhaps today, and I'll quote John 14. I will come again. I'll open the middle window. Perhaps today. And I'll quote out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Perhaps today. And I'll open the third window. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. The voice of our... Perhaps today. One day will be the day. I've often thought, I want to be, if Jesus comes in my lifetime, I want to be one person who said, perhaps today, and then it happens. Wow, that would be something. I would love to see that happen. Bring it. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's uh, stand, have our closing song.